Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker, somewhere in the Los Angeles area... <laughs> Jesus. All right, that didn't take long. Oh, man. That did not take... No. I, I was... First 90 seconds of every program is nice. dedicated to College Radio USA. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> take two. Hi, I'm the legendary Pearl Bear, the man producing the show with an artistic vengeance is Magic Matt Allen. And you know, Howard, as, as you well know, for years I've been doing this radio show, over 10 years now, and I never could figure out how to get it on iTunes or Spotify or any of those oh, things. Oh, hang on a second. So you do the show and you have no clue as to how it's... Just I, I would call Dan Zapansky, who does True Murder, our close yes, personal he, friend, who has the second most enjoyable program. Well, he's got, the, he's got the most enjoyable in his country. Yes, uh, which is Canadian. It's Canadian. 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 Yes. In any event, uh, he you tried know, to help those, me out. Those but Canadians, ben, they look like us, they smell like, like us, but, but we, they're not us. Oh, we should have oh, barbed wire at the border. Trust me, yeah. I've got a decade of proof. <laughs> <laughs> but you're still getting your uh, money from the Canadian I get, government. I, I, which is really... Uh, they're paying you not to come back. They, they don't want me back. Meanwhile... But I get, I so, get a check every month. Someone invented this thing called Anchor FM, which is brilliant. Although we record the show, hopefully, upload it to Anchor. They distribute it at no cost to uh, iTunes and Spotify and everything else to make it so easy. So what's in it for them? Uh, what's in it for them is they sell advertising. Where do they, they put it around the show? During they the put meeting? it around the show and then we get money in the mail. I haven't No, Neither have I, but I, I, I know we're up to $8.28. <laughs> so I get $4 and... <laughs> no, it all goes to Matt, I think. Yeah, but that's right. 87% goes to Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, we're up to $8.28 since, since I said go ahead and monetize us. So we're doing pretty good. They're paying us uh, $15 per thousand. Is that right? Yeah. So we're up to, actually we're up to more than $15. So. But I, I think it has to accrue up to the point where, where we can buy uh, yeah, yeah, bad, a new yeah, yeah. set of headphones. Just for the sake of the <laughs> audience, I mean, th this is the first time hearing of this, and I'm, I'm, I'm stunned that I haven't been brought into this. Well, now, you, now you're in the loop. I'll, I'll keep you posted every week on how much money Matt gets. <laughs> That's all I need to know is how much is Matt getting. That's all. Yeah. I'm glad he's getting some because I ain't getting nothing from nobody nowhere this week. And there's a reason for that. Bro. Well, there is there yeah, a reason. because we have no time for you. And I didn't think so. He's manager of the star, and apparently... I'm a uh, former supernova that has gone dark. <laughs> that too. You know, a lot of people say, Burl, you must have an enviable life as a true crime author. What a fantastic position to be in, which is usually fetal crying in the middle of the night. <laughs> but say, how, do, how does... You know, people think just if they have the idea or they know of the crime, the book is going to manifest itself magically. You, you know what I'd like to do today? 16-year-old twins. No, the, the, guest, the guest that we had booked We'll rebook. I want you to be the guest. Thank you. Okay. I, I want you to tell us how this works. It usually... And I'm talking about how Burl Bear works. Forget about the writing part. Well, well you're dealing with a total neurotic, first of all. Is that right? No, not just my editor, but me. <laughs> What'd you say? I'm a sugar daddy, yes. That's like the, the guy, oh, I love my son-in-law. He always calls me my sugar. <laughs> Whatever I say, my son-in-law says, my sugar, my sugar. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. Off to a slow uh, but rising start. Painful start. Okay. If you want to know what it's like for me to be a true crime writer. All right. First of all, you gotta you got to find a crime. And you got to find a crime that 
uh, is interesting and is marketable. You see, it's a market-driven it, it, business. It, it sounds like you're interviewing yourself. Let me ask okay, you. Okay, you ask. Because this particular is what, what I want to talk about. We're going to get there. Oh, okay. Oh, we're going to get there. Okay. But first, I think we should put some context as to who you are. I mean, yes. people hear you every week. No. They hear you talk about these books that you've written. Nobody goes and buys them. No one, no one, no one. No. Well, people do buy some of them. But now that people are listening to the show, they have taste. Yeah, and, and also they're illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, so... so you started. You started out as a, a radio guy. Yeah, playing the hits. You were playing the hits up in uh, Seattle. Seattle. And doing a lot of advertising for Los Angeles area for Wolf and Rissmiller concerts and Concerts West and those. Wolf Rissmiller. Wolf and Rissmiller. Steve Wolf was tragically murdered. You know, remember? Yes, right? I, I know. Well, yeah. Well, that wasn't a book. No. So I sat next to Sylvester Stallone at the funeral. Did you? Yeah. Was he Rocky yet? <laughs> yeah, he was. He was beyond Rocky at oh. that point. He's only five eleven. I was taller than he was. No, he's he's not. Uh, he used to come to the office all the time, and uh, not a not a very large guy. No, but uh, very uh, big in stature. Yeah. In other areas. So what's the next so, question? The next question is how does you know some clown that's playing the hits turn into a guy that can write words in between covers of a book? Well, there's uh, not much difference between writing a commercial. And writing a book. But commercials it, are 60 seconds or Right, it's like seconds. writing the world's longest damn commercial. <laughs> That's a damn long commercial. What it, what it is, is like writing a term paper. If you ever been in school, you had to write a term paper, the aggravation of that? Yeah. It's like writing the world's biggest term paper. I didn't have a term paper go longer than 16 pages. Well, how about uh, 100,000 words? No. No, of I'm course not. I'm not a writer. I, I, I could well, that's done. what people don't realize. If, see, people say, gee, I should write a book. What they really mean is, I wish I'd already written one. And people will get excited about writing a book, their memoirs or whatever it is. They'll have an idea for a story. They'll be all excited. They'll sit down at the typewriter. They'll start writing. Not, and they'll get to about 50 pages. Then what happens? And then they stop, and they realize that they have 400 and some more to go. It all has to fit together with transitions, short-term sales. They, they put it in a drawer, and they never finish it. it, except for those, such as I, who after eight years of having something in a drawer went, well, I was moving, and I found it. And I went, huh, I wonder. So, yeah, well, back up, because <laughs> I, I, I do not know this story. I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated. So you were a radio guy, yeah, and you were... You you wrote something years ago. It was a research thing that... Well, I'll tell you what it was. Yeah, I wish you exactly. would. Uh, I was uh, sitting, uh, minding my own business, <laughs> reading, and I was reading a, a, a Baha'i book, and it had a quote from the Quran in it. And so I just had a curiosity. I wondered which translation was used. Because at the time that book was written, there were two translations that existed. And those were? One by a fellow named Sale, who did the first one, and another one by a guy named Rodwell. One was more poetic, the other was more just like a literal word-for-word translation. Both of them written by people who were not Muslims, who had no sympathy for the faith whatsoever, and basically wrote it to show that it was nonsense or something. So it had a, an editorial slant to it. So I just wondered which, but they were you know, good translations, I wondered which one was used. And I discovered neither. Which meant that the author, whose name was Shoghi Effendi Rabbani, had done his own translation. He was known as one of the greatest translators of Arabic to English that was ever lived. I didn't know there was a contest. Yes, there was. Oh, okay. It was similar to the People's Choice Awards. Anyway, guys, <laughs> uh, well, how many of these verses did he personally translate? 
So then I got out all the books. And this is before there were computers. I'm doing this in longhand, making a list and going through and checking it twice. And then I got a Franklin Ace 1200 OMS computer for the big floppies, you know. And they went, what the hell am I doing? First of all, I don't read Arabic. I'm not a Muslim. It's fascinating. Yeah, what was, what was your fascination to do this? Uh, being as he was considered the greatest translator, and they were always asking him to translate the Quran, and he said, I'm too busy. But apparently he translated quite a few of the verses, or he amended them. In other words, he'd look at Rod Wells and go, that's not quite right, and fix it. Well, how many did he do? If I could find all the ones he did and validate it and put them in order, that would be of, of literary significance. And then I said, well, what the hell am I doing? I'm sure someone before me has figured this out. Someone must have. You know, I'm sure it's already been done. Disc jockey from St. Louis. Yeah, so yeah, (laughs) maybe maybe Dan Zapansky. I don't know. So I threw it in a drawer, and uh, as Matt said, most people never do anything about it. Well, I was moving to Walla Walla, Washington. and To uh, or back to? uh, Back to Walla Walla, Washington, where I was born and raised to rock and roll. And... uh, (laughs) I found it. I found my handwritten notes, and so at about uh, the middle of the night, when it's a different time in England, I called George Ronald Publishing at Oxford and said, uh, I can show that Shoghi Vinti Rabbani translated significant portions of the Quran. And they said, prove it, we'll publish it. Whoa. Oh, okay, well, I, could, I can prove it. And so I went through and I completed the project, and I sent it to them, and they wrote back with a question. A question that someone would have to be able to speak Arabic to explain to them. Oh, man. <laughs> the question was, why, why is it that you have uh, the Guardian uh, Shogi Fendi translates this verse as, the, uh, the sun and the moon are both consigned to eternal fire, and everyone else says the sun and the moon have their courses, their, their rotations in the solar system. Damn divine. Sun, day, moon, night. Yeah. No? And I said... Mainly. Mainly. I had to find someone who knew, right? So I had to find someone who was familiar with this topic, who spoke Arabic. And I got hold of a woman who had been his secretary decades ago. And she was still alive and in San Francisco. And she said, oh, I could explain that. The word, if I'm saying the word right, can have more than one meaning depending on context. In one context, it can mean uh, revolving, you know, time, or it can mean fire, but it depends entirely on the context. Both interpretations are correct because in sacred scriptures there's many levels of meaning. So it depends on which which way you're looking at it. So I said, thank, <clears throat> thank you very much. I, you know, took notes while I was talking to her, sent that back to England, and they said, thank you, we'll publish it. So they did publish it as an addendum to another research work, and that was my very first published work. Uh, there, there are t- yes, there's a book called Baha'i References to Christianity, Judaism, and Islam by James Heggie with an addendum afterwards, which is Translations and Emendations of the Holy Quran by Shoghi Effendi Rubani. Ta-da! So it's a scholarly oh, work. I'm confused and don't care. It's a scholarly work, but that was the first thing I had published. Well, then, minding my own business one day, I get a phone call from, of all people, a famous bass player from uh, a Seattle rock and roll band. He, out of the blue, I mean, I've never had this guy's ever called me before. He said, Burl, this is uh, so-and-so. I don't want to his name because I can't remember. <laughs> I'll come to be in a minute. 
Do you remember uh, the band he was in? Uh, yeah, he was in uh, the uh, uh, the Whalers. From the Bob Marley and the Whalers? No, no, the Seattle Whalers, oh, the ones yeah. that influenced George Harrison and the Beatles. Oh, those guys. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. they used to listen to the Whalers, the, the, the Beatles did, and they were a big influence on them. So uh, he said, uh, Ann Rule suggested uh, I get hold of you. So well, that's awfully nice of her. Uh, there's a guy named Phil Champagne. <laughs> Again with the Phil Champagne. Phil Champagne. He sent me all the newspaper clippings and said, would you be interested in doing uh, a book on this? And I said, yeah. And so I did. That was my first true crime book, was Man Overboard, the kind of a resurrection of Phil Champagne. And uh, that started my true crime career. Okay, but you sat down at a typewriter yeah. and said, go. Well, what I did is I went and I interviewed Tons of interviews, tons of research. I got hold of everybody who was conceivably connected to the case. The insurance agents who were suing, the, the defense attorneys, the prosecuting attorneys. And I interviewed them in depth and got tons of research material. How, how did you know to do that first? Well, it just made sense to me. Okay. I mean, how are you going to write about something if you don't have information? <laughs> hold up for one second, Yeah, your microphone isn't on, thank God. What is it? Uh, I'm not sure. I think maybe she'd heard nice things about me. <laughs> I don't have uh, I don't have my glasses on, so I don't know what you're doing. But anyway, so I did that. But uh, then I get a phone call from. Uh, by this time, I have an agent. After Man Overboard came out, Charlotte Dial Breeze, her name, Breeze Literary, and uh, she gets hold of me, wants to represent me, and then she gives me a call and says, Kensington Publishing wants a book about a uh, a murder case in Alaska. And I said, is there a check attached? She said, yes. I said, I'm their guy. <laughs> now, this is a serious true crime, but Man Overboard was kind of funny. This is a deadly serious, horrifying case. And uh, I said, I'm the guy. So they put me in touch with the, uh, the contact who brought the subject up in the first place. Next thing I know, I'm on a plane to Alaska doing research. And that was a very painful case, but I did a lot of research, and that was so far my first, <laughs> I won't say only, because I might have another one, but that was my first New York Times bestseller. In fact, they didn't expect it to be a New York Times bestseller. They were stunned, amazed, aghast, agog, and thunderstruck when all of a sudden uh, the book winds up in the New York Times bestseller list, and they ran out of books. And this uh, title of this tone? That was Murder in the Family. So Kensington, being thrilled with having a, a New York Times bestseller, immediately signs me to a multi-book contract. Mm. And I uh, cranked out uh, Headshot and uh, some other books, uh, Mom Said Killed, Broken Doll, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then I get the phone call that says from Michael Hamilton, executive uh, editor at Kensington, saying, Burl, all your previous books have been about blue-collar killers. You know, psychopaths, you know, Drifters, bums, <coughs> gypsies, tramps, and thieves. Oh, my. Oh, my, yes. Uh, lovers, muggers, and thieves, but they're cool people. <laughs> I think we've run the gamut. We've run the gamut. I love that dirty water. Okay, so <laughs> she says, what we need from you now is a, a, a shift. The economy has gone bad here in the United States of America, and people don't want to read about people such as they who are murderers. What they want is they want people who are rich who are murderers they want to 
read it. Well, they, 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 people like to see the... Uh, the uh, high, broad, low. It's called yeah. Schadenfreude. That, that, too. Yeah. It's a big word, though, for us today. That's, that's yeah. So they said, find a story where there is... The people are rich, good-looking, do a lot of drugs, have a lot of sex, and it's an added bonus, our research shows, if you could add a wood chipper. A what? A wood chipper. See, the movie Fargo, remember they, they put the guy in the wood chipper? Yeah, yeah. Apparently that resonated, and they're marketing, because all, all these things are, are researched. Can't go wrong. Yeah. Can't go wrong with a wood chipper. Can't go wrong with a wood chipper. So if you could get those ingredients, well, I found everything but the wood chipper. Well, that's the main ingredient. Well, no, no. Actually, if you're one of the, the, uh, the wealthy... Who can you not... can make up the fact that they've got money and that they're good looking. No, no, no. It's a true crime book. You don't make stuff up. Why not? Because it's true. Oh. <laughs> that's why. I'm not the president. This is true stuff. Okay? <laughs> now, so then I have to find the case. I have to find the case. Where do I find it? I have to start asking people. I ask other true crime writers. I called Susie Spencer, our, our sex expert. Yeah. The one who wrote, uh, you know, You're on the Fringes of Somebody's Sexuality, whatever it's called. And she said, I've got it for you. I got one for you. And sure enough, she did. And uh, that may not have been this one, <laughs> but it was a good one. And next thing I know, I'm investigating the case of Jimmy Jost, Rhonda Glover. She murders him, 13 bullets from a Glock 9 millimeter. And I start interviewing his friends. Where was this? Where did this in Austin, Texas, and in Houston. But the murder took place in Austin. And I'm doing my regular research that I do. Now, here comes the, uh, shall we say, the, the, the problem area of my neuroses is that I'd made a terrible mistake. I violated one of the things that my editor told me don't do. And that would be? Reading the reviews on Amazon. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. Any, uh, nobody should read reviews. No. No. So don't read the reviews. The good ones, the ones where they rave about the book and give it five stars, you'll never remember. But the troll, the ass. Oh, that one half star guy? Yeah. He'll haunt you forever. He goes, he goes to your grave. Yeah. Yeah. And I read the reviews, and what are they, the ones who don't like my stuff, what are they complaining about? They're complaining about that I, and I, because I find it interesting. I try to combine the true crime genre with the legal thriller genre. In other words, I always have a lot about the trial, a lot about the, the infighting between the lawyers. What, uh, and, how did you make that decision to go that, that route? Because I find the legal process fascinating because it's just as corrupt as the murder. In fact, in Headshot, that was the entire book. That was the concept of the book, is that the legal process, everything that happened legally was a mirror image of the insanity of the crime. It was, it was totally corrupt, the entire pro process. The fact where one judge throws a fit in the courtroom, says, this case is giving me eccentric headache, number 853, I'm out of here, and got up and stormed out of the courtroom. The judge? Yeah, the judge. What happened then? They had another mistrial. There were like two mistrials, um, multiple appeals to the state Supreme Court. The thing was a giant mess. The defense attorney winds up being elected prosecutor and has to prosecute the case he defended. Figure that one out. It gets crazier. I mean, it's just insane. So that's what I thought was the hook of the book. It did okay. But now I'm, I've been in, got this thing about the legal aspect. And so now I'm, I'm reticent to, to do that. Well, without that, now I start kind of floundering. I've got all the information. I'm writing the book, but I don't have my 
literary direction, shall we say. I can't hear a word you're saying. So what do I do? I don't know. I'm, I literally get stuck. And, my, and, you, and this is so early in your career, this hadn't happened much before. No, this hadn't happened before. This is later on. I mean, I've already had like, you know, one, two, three, four, you know, it's like my fifth book for them. You know, and all of a sudden, I'm, I don't, I didn't know the word to use for what was happening with me. I had all this information. I'm writing the book, but I don't have the whatever, the hook, the whatever you want to call it. Well, you did, is it writer's block? Or no, 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 I could write. Yeah. That wasn't the problem. You, you, it was just to know how you were going to present. Yeah, it was all in the presentation. Yeah. And God bless her soul, Michaela Hamilton, chief executive editor of Kensington, calls me on the phone. And she just says, you're drowning in your manuscript, aren't you? It's not her first day at the beach. And I said, you're exactly right. Right. She says, okay, one thing you got to remember. You write books for people who like your books. You don't write them for the people who don't. Ta-da. Ta-da. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, hell yeah. Okay, I got it. Off you go. Yeah, to hell with yeah. them. To hell with Mr. Half Star. To hell with the people bitching about the fact I'm talking about the attorneys. I'll just write the book. Yeah. Now, I did make, depends on one's opinion. This is totally an opinion piece of Publishers Weekly. Uh, thought that my choice of how I did the presentation was not a wise choice. And that you see, was, right there, you you remember? I remember what Publishers Weekly said. Publishers Weekly, because they said you didn't make a... <laughs> that you take with you. Yeah. Let me ask you about two compliments you got. You can't help me. No, <laughs> I can do well, brilliant, marvelous, yeah, 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 all that stuff, yeah. all the things I like to hear. I decided to present that book stylistically as if it were... Like to say, a television documentary. Get it back like this. Yeah. Just like set it up and then bam, you know, just no, the same no, structure no. as a television documentary except without the pictures. Right. The, the word pictures instead. And uh, as the negative reviews, <laughs> that takes kind of the soul out of it. It takes a little bit out of the, the you know, uh, most unpaid. But the book still got overall good reviews. And in fact, it has just now been re released. As an audio book, uh, and uh, as, as an ebook, so that's nice too. I can't hear a word you're saying. You did the soundtrack. <laughs> you did the soundtrack. Okay. In any event, it's not just a matter of if you're going to write a true crime book of and knowing what the story is. Oh, geez, so and so killed so and so. Well, if it's a smoking gun, if there's no question about who did it, what's the story? In this case, there was no question about who did it, but the question was to make sense out of it. Why? What possible conceivable reason could this nice guy have been gunned down by the woman he loved when there was, you know, no no sane reason? So you find you you find a way to ask yourself why. You got the why. Now you want to answer the question. Yeah. And that becomes the book. And that becomes the book. It, it depends entirely on what the case is, what the dynamics are between the people involved, and a sensitivity of getting information. Now, as with any writer doing any project, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to maybe not get a piece of information you should have had. You're going to overlook something. Well, that's perfectly normal. That's, that's something to slash your wrists over. But you have to be more than... I have had people say to me, and I've probably said similar things to you about movies or whatever, say, you should do my life story. It should be a book. And I say, how does it end? 
Yeah, there you go. Yeah, how does it end? You got to get those people out. Yeah. <laughs> now some of them, their 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 life stories are fascinating, but if their life's not over with yet, right? So what? They they had a divorce. They had a, this, a, you know, there's eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. Now it's 13 million. The population's up. But you've got to think beyond what you think a book is. Do you start at the end and and, and try and get like Mickey Spillane? Now, see, Mickey Spillane always wrote the last chapter first. So, because it always, all of his books ended, pow! Yeah. Big bang. Because that's what his most energy is. Yeah, and so that's what he did. Now, it is true, and a lot of people don't know this, people worry about their first chapter of a book. You don't have to. Because whatever the most, excuse me, whatever the most powerful chapter, the most fascinating chapter, the most interesting chapter of the book, even if it's chapter six or seven, that is going to be your first chapter. The editor is going to decide this is the most powerful chapter. We start with that, and then we flash See, back. See, now there's the, the, that process I know nothing about. I've, yeah. I've, I've, basically, I've, I've read books. Now, I'll tell you, there's a fantastic book that was made into a TV movie called Gone But Not Forgotten. It's the name of it. International bestseller. A fabulous book. It was an absolutely fascinating book, and it was made into a TV movie starring Lou Diamond Phillips, who used to play uh, poker with Matt Allen, I think. <laughs> Am I right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they reversed in the TV movie, all the male roles were female and the female roles were male. Why did they do that? For demographics, for the people who watch uh, true crime movies. Got it. See, true crime is a female-driven genre. That is why it's on Outlaw Radio, which is a male-driven genre. The whole entire concept was to take true crime and make it interesting to men. Because the majority of the true crime. So did they, did Kensington make that your 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 task the, the, as you've went forward? What the, to make it interesting to men? Yeah. No, this is what I decided to do on Outlaw Radio. Oh, okay. That's why when Matt said, "Gee, bro, you ought to do a show just before mine for an hour. What do you yeah. want to do?" And I said, well, "Gee, we're this is. I mean, the 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 listenership of Outlaw Radio is primarily men uh, 18 to 45 with a good chance of doing five to 10." <laughs> <laughs> and so how do you get, you know, these uh, smoking, drinking, interrupting guys to be interested in what is essentially a female-driven genre, which is true crime? And I figured, well, you get someone such as I, who's a raging lunatic, and at that time Don Waldman, a very respected attorney, and uh, turn the whole uh, presentation of the genre on its head and do it entirely differently. Don't do it with the, you know... The women, you know, the story. Of my why husband. is it? Why, let's dig into that for a second. Why? Why women first? Why do they respond first? It's and, and most. And most is mostly white collar literate women. Because they like drama. They like drama, and they want to identify with the people involved, and they care about the feelings of the people involved. Empathy. What, 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 what's well, I don't know what he's empathy. saying. Empathy. Empathy. Oh, yes. Thank you. And that's because psychopaths who commit these crimes don't have empathy. They're empathy-free. Well, it's almost impossible. Yes. They know how to fake it, yeah. but they don't know how to make it. Right. Or as Dr. Robert Harris said, they know the words, but they can't hear the music, which is a great metaphor good, That's for a good, yeah. Uh, and uh, guys tend to, if they're going to be into true crime at all, are into it more, from a police procedural standpoint. I mean, guys communicate to exchange data, information. Women communicate to, uh, to how they feel or mostly respond to that data. 
That's why when uh, we wrote Betrayal in Blue, when Frank Gerardo and I wrote Betrayal in Blue about the cocaine cops of the NYPD, NYPD, I mean, we're talking about testosterone overdose there. I mean, this is all guys all the time. You know, they know where the bodies are buried, but they don't know how they feel about it. By putting the very first chapter of Betrayal in Blue begins with Ken Urell's wife. Ah, okay. Yeah, we started with her perspective on the whole thing. She's home alone and her house is being raided. Where it's going, you know, it's all her. Because women are the, the barometer of the relationship. You know, that's, that's where it all is, is happening. And to, to exclude the women and their perspective and their response from these situations is to shortchange the reality of the situation. Is to leave out, you know, the, the, if all it is is a... Uh, a laundry list of data and information, there's no hook, you know. You have to get that, especially when you consider that all the recent research shows that men are in reality even more sensitive than women. <laughs> it's just that in Western culture, they get it squished out of them. Why is that? By women. By, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that answered By my culture. question. That answered my question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's accurate or not. Yeah, it's pretty but it's that whole boys don't cry business. Yeah. 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 Uh, so who knows? You're talking about the feminization of culture, which is an entirely different thing. I mean, the, the male qualities that were so important back in caveman days, etc., cetera, uh, are of less and less value in the intuitive, the empathetic, etc., because more and more important. Men have those abilities also. It's just that they've been underdeveloped. No. And women could do anything the guy could do. You know, anything you could do, I could do better. I could do anything. <laughs> not I, I didn't but know you were uh, singing. Is not not no. Let's but mathematics, for example. Did you, did you see the movie? Uh, uh, Hidden at was what the about the space program with yeah. women in the space program. Yeah. Where they brought in these women to do you know this incredible mathematics stuff. These are the women can't do math. Women can't be architects. Women can't you know what a bunch of nonsense. If given the opportunity, the education. They could do it. Now, they may not be able to lift 10,000 pounds without doing a bunch of, you know, but the, I can't do it either. So it's, you're dealing with a lot of cultural issues. But getting back to writing true crime is different than writing fiction. And it's also easier to sell, by the way. And that is, in a true crime book, you know how it ends. You know what happens. And I get letters from people sometimes with these negative reviews, you always remember. Well, there was no mystery to this. He said right off the bat who did it. <laughs> yeah, <but> the <laughs> True crime books usually are mysteries, except for uh, Taste for Murder, we structured like a mystery. But First one I read many, huh? many, many long time ago was in Cold Blood, and it was one of the biggest of all time. Yeah, but it wasn't really a true crime book. Well, okay. See, that has caused problems in the true crime. In Didn't true he climate. take uh, poetic license? He took more than poetic license. It was the, dialogue. Yes, exactly. Therein lies the problem. A real true crime book, you can't say what people are thinking unless they tell you. You know, you're making it up. And so what he did is like a docudrama. He wrote a novel based on a true crime. Okay. And it was a new form, I guess you could say, but it wasn't really true crime. Another one like that is Sleepers by Lorenzo Cartera. Mm -hmm. Great book, good movie. Everybody and their dog is in that movie, Dustin Hoffman, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it's not a true story at all. Not a, not a bit of it's true. But it's a good story. <laughs> well, we're in the storytelling business. Yeah. You know, whether and it's real or not. It says it's a story from his childhood, but it's not true. Maybe the way he liked to remember it. Now, Jack Olson, uh, may he rest in peace, who was my mentor, so to speak, and one of my biggest uh, fans and supporters. And he liked Lorenzo, too. And he said, Lorenzo, what are you doing here? This isn't a true story. And Lorenzo said, well, I'm laughing all the way to the bank because the book was a bestseller and the movie, you know, movie did great. 
And uh, so when they did the movie, instead of saying from the shocking true story, they said from the controversial bestseller, <laughs> because seven true crime authors petitioned true crime authors petitioned the publisher to not classify it as true crime because it wasn't a true story. Call it a dynamite novel. Call it a, you know, inspired by childhood mismemories, whatever you want to call it. But please don't call it true crime because it's not. But, you know, so, that's showbiz. It is showbiz, by the way. But you know, there, look, there is a standard, supposedly, just as in journalism, there's standards, there's ethics, that you don't have internal dialogue in a true crime book because you don't know what they're thinking. You know, you can guess. I was going to say, can you guess? You can say, maybe she was I mean, thinking. you know the outcome. Yeah. You do know the outcome of whatever they were thinking. But if you can't say, if you Sally can't. is walking to her car thinking about, you know, her children just before the bull blows her brains out. You don't know what she was thinking, and she can't tell you because she's dead. So for you to say that is BS. Ah, just make it up. Yeah, well, you can't. You shouldn't. I know. Unless then, if you are going to make it up, then it's a, it's not a true crime book. It's not a fact crime book. It's uh, your interpretation. Your Is there a difference between a true crime book and a crime book? Well, you know they they're trying. Uh, Kensington came up with this new thing where they didn't call them true crime books. They called them nonfiction thrillers. Okay. Trying to go more for the male audience as well. Nonfiction thrillers, which they are. They're nonfiction, and in many cases, they're thrilling. Or they can be very dull and boring, depending, depending on how your attitude towards the style. Now, I mean, i got to get off of some literary theory here, but true crime books from the major true crime publishers, such as uh, Kensington's excellent Pinnacle True Crime series, and Berkeley uh, does them also, and St. Martin's Press, are usually 100,000 words, and we're always accused of padding to get up to that word count. And they want a Joe Friday kind of approach. You know, just the facts, ma'am. And you try to put those facts in, as, in, at least in a manner that's easy to read or somewhat entertaining. Now, when Frank Gerardo and I did A Taste for Murder for Wild Blue Press, we sat down and said, a good mystery or thriller is usually 60,000 words. It's not 100,000. It's a quick, not a quick read, but a, a satisfying read. And it's got some personality to it. So we decided we're just going to take as long to tell the story as it takes to tell the story. And we're going to tell it as if you're sitting here with us, as I said... On the edge of your seat, either leaning back in your chair or sitting on the edge of your seat, we're just going to tell you the story. And it's a good story. You like stories, and we like telling them. So we're going to tell you a story. And this is the story. And we did it in that style, and it did incredibly well. And the biggest compliment we got was that style. So we did something new and different, and it worked. And So now everybody's going to do it. Now everybody, <laughs> it's like all the true crime shows now are yeah. You know, more like ours than sure than Dan Zapansky's, even though he has more listeners, I think, maybe in Canada. But he does a great show, and he got married. And he did. So he's and he'll find out anyway. Yeah, <laughs> he'll find out what hell awaits him, <laughs> <laughs> or what lies beneath. Remember that hair? It ain't pretty. No. That's right, folks. I remember people, people told me that that would happen, and uh, I said, nah, nah, and then ooh. Anyway. Well, there's things that you don't Everyone know. Everyone told all of us. Yes. There's things that you... I mean, I know people who've been married, happily married. My folks were happily married for over 50 years till my dad passed away. I only remember them having one so, big argument. Hello? Doing, hello, what? Am I up now? Are you up? If the man's talking. What are you doing, a sound check? <laughs> 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 tasting one, two, three. Why don't you check the drums, see if they're mic'd? Yeah, right. Hello? 
So the thing is, if you're going to write true crime, you find a case. Now, the problem is, oh, gee, there was this big case that was all over the news. Are you going to write about that? And I say, no. Why not? Because it's a big case that's all over the news. When a book comes out, people think they already read it. Yeah. <laughs> they already know all about it. What do they need a book for? You'll see what we call Q&Ds, quick and dirties. Okay. And that's where it's an exp exploitive book about a case that, you know, is on right now, and they'll crank that thing out as fast as they can, get it out there, bam, make money off it, which I have no objection to. Right. That's, well, that's it, fine it, with that, me. That helps you, by the way. If, if it helps me, fine. Yeah. Well, but I try to find a case that if people don't know about, unless you lived in that town, like Murder in the Family, a horrifying case. Still have nightmares about that one. Uh, and no one knew about it unless you lived in Alaska. Te tease us a little bit about Murder in the Family. Kirby D. Anthony raped and murdered his aunt and her two little girls. There's your story. Why? How? How'd they catch him? It's just, I mean, uh, it's been done twice on uh, the FBI forensic files. They, have, they haven't done a, a movie or TV movie about it yet. And perhaps that's because it is structured in real life, just like a movie. The guy makes a run for the border. Literally, it takes six hours to get... From where to where? From uh, Anchorage, Alaska, to the Canadian border. To go into Canada, across Canada, back into America. It takes six hours. He's in a one-ton flatbed truck. His roommate doesn't tell the cops that he's run for the border until six hours later. Just about the time he was... The cops call the uh, American side, and they said, he just went through. He's in the three-mile no-man's land between checkpoints. So they call the Canadian, and the guy has just pulled up to the window. Stop it. He said, <clears throat> he's a suspect in uh, three homicides. So we don't want him coming into Canada. I said, turn him around. I mean, the timing on that is just like out of a movie. Let me ask you something. Huh? Is it is it no man's land or no mad's land? I, mads? No mad's. No I think it's no mad's land, and I think that the majority of people say no man's land. You could be correct. But it's well, no man's. Nomads <laughs> makes more sense. Yes, it's no mad's land. Because it's but, between whatever. But people on... Uh, uh, on uh, the island outside of New York mm -hmm. and in New York, and Burl Bear says no man's land because yes, I just sir. heard it. I know. All right. Then we cleared that up. Now, now let's look it up. Mark Boyer, you're a fact yes, checker. Sir. Look it up. Let's Give take something to do instead of talking. Take a break. We'll take a break. Because of something that started years and years ago. And I mean years. Long before I came to the North Pole, all this territory was ruled over by a powerful magic king of the North Pole named Winterbone. And this terrible tyrant's powers came from a scepter of solid ice. Now you can take your smoking, drinking, interrupting obsession with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device. And it's all free. Just go to your friendly app store and search for Outlaw Radio. Then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it. It's free. Listen free on the road, in your car, at the beach, or in your backyard. It's all free. 
from Outlaw Radio. This is Buddy Twist saying goodnight from Hollywood. Back to True Crime Uncensored. Yeah, I've heard of it. With the legendary Burl Bear. <laughs> With Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. All right. So, yes, we're back, we're black, we're loud, we're proud, we're going to play yeah, this thing we, we, We've kind of flipped the show around today. Yeah. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. As little as there possible. Was the, there was the flip. <laughs> right there. So, what we're doing, we're talking to Burl, who... Uh, you're, week in and week out, you talk about the 20 books you've written or the 40 or how many books? Uh, I've lost count, 19, something like that. Okay. And uh, I, I didn't believe you wrote them. <laughs> you didn't believe I wrote no, them? No, <laughs> no. Until you gave me one, and I said, whoa, look at this. So um, <laughs> You could have just gone and looked like on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You'd see my, you know, all my books are there. Yeah, well, you, you know, I can do that, too. Yeah, but that's, that's work. Yes. <laughs> Um, it appears that over time, the two terms are synonymous. What the hell is he saying? I have no idea. No mans or no mads. What did you oh, find out? It's that they, that they did have different meanings at one point between uh, no one living there and whether it's disputed territory. But over time, the meanings have blurred, and it, they're, they're synonymous. If you can use either so one. So it doesn't matter. You can use either one and, and, and be right. Yeah. Okay, we got that settled. Next. What's the next question? I have no next question. Oh, thanks a lot. No, I know. <laughs> no, What's your question? How, um, if you, when you decide on a project, like you, know, you, you have a crime that you find interesting, how do you sit down and start mapping out your plans for research and, and, inf and fact gathering? Okay, first of all, I'll give you an example. As with, it's a little different with Kensington than with uh, Wild Blue or some of the other publishers I've worked with. With Kensington, what I would do is I would find three or four cases of significant interest to me. Now, remember, the publishing companies do research. You know, it's like some people think that USA Today is a newspaper. It's not. It's a magazine. The difference between a newspaper and a magazine is a newspaper publishes the news. <laughs> a magazine researches what you want to read about and then publishes it. Then publishes that. it. They yeah. write that. Yeah. So uh, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a market driven. It's, it's like show business is business. You know, about shows. <laughs> Same thing with publishing. They want to make money. Well, that's the whole deal. That's the whole deal. That's Everybody it. does, though. Everybody no wants to make money. No matter what your job is, you want to wake up in the morning, morning, go to make money. That's right. So they know, they do research on what the audience wants to read. So I will submit uh, three or four uh, crimes to my editor at that time, uh, and she would say, this one, do this one. Okay. Based on what is she basing? Based on the market research of what the audience wants to read. So it fits. So it fits. It fits what we want. You know, this one doesn't. It's blue collar. We want white collar. Whatever the dwarf times change, this one's white collar. Professional people know we want a blue collar. So whatever we want a wood chipper. You know, we want a lot of drugs. And we want a lot of you know whatever it is. You find one that matches. What do you think they want today? Damn good question. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's it's a little bit of both <laughs> because of the the economy. It, a lot of it is economy driven. Why is that? It's because people who are blue collar workers, when they read true crime, they want to read about rich people in trouble. When they're doing well, they want to read about people below them. They always want to be able to read the book and say, "I'm better than they are." That's what it comes. No matter to. which end, you whichever it ends, so you're reading. You're going, "I'm better than they are. My life is better than theirs is." 
because they're murdering everybody or their whole family's been murdered or whatever. Of course, if you're one of the people whose family's been murdered, you're unamused, you don't read it anyway. There's nothing amusing about that at all. No. 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 Uh, now, with Wild Blue, they're, they're pretty flexible. If I say, I, I would like to write a book about this. In fact, I said, there's a, I would like to write a book about this. And they said, we don't think there's really a market for that. However, being is that your other books have been doing okay for us, we'll bite the bullet and we'll, we'll do that one for you. We'll put it out, no guarantee. But he's going to want to read it. <laughs> well, I haven't written that one. Uh, I've written some that the audience say. I mean, it's weird. Like, I'm best known for true crime. I have a very well-reviewed uh, private eye novel, but my best-reviewed books. Sales? Nothing. That I could be nothing, close to, despite all the rave reviews. Now, is that because of the title, Headlock? We talked about this before. Right. Uh, and I have had uh, media professionals say, it's the title, it's the problem. you got to change the title, change the cover. So change it. That's what right. I'll ask you to come up with a title for it. Uh, or it's because you're known for true crime, and therefore this isn't a true crime book, so your regular audience isn't into private eye novels, so they're not buying a private eye novel. You know, so, I mean, who knows what the deal is on that. And also with The Man Overboard, uh, which uh, was nominated for Best True Crime Book of the Year at the World Mystery Convention. did win, but it was nominated, which is a great honor right unto itself. Which convention is this now? The World Mystery Convention. It's called BoucherCon, named after uh, movie, uh, excuse me, book critic Anthony Boucher, which was his real name anyway, but that's the name he used. And it's the, it's the World Mystery Convention, and uh, they give awards every year. And uh, they were doing fact crime uh, at that time, and I was uh, nominated, which is a great honor. Uh, yes. To say it's a great honor just to be nominated, whether you win or not. That is true. And so I was pleased about that. Uh, I lost my train of thought, which was heading to We have no train of thought in this. <laughs> this, this is strange in Clarksville. How just, you start organizing Okay, so reason. once you say, okay, you're going to do uh, this Jimmy Joe's Rhonda Glover. Okay, well, where's Rhonda Glover? She's in prison. So I write Rhonda Glover after finding out as much about her as I could and said, I'm going to do a book on this case, and I'm going to let you give you free reign of commentary on everything. So no matter what anybody says about you or what it says in the paper, you can refute, you can give your perspective on everything. So while she's in the can, yeah. you're exchanging letters. notes and letters. I said, if you give me permission to quote and publish from anything you say or you've ever said or written or written down, and give me access to everything, I will give you access to everything. You can comment on absolutely everything. That would be great to have running commentary by the person who did the murder. She said yes. Well, what else has she got to do all day? Right. I don't know. But been saying yes, apparently she forgot that she wrote all sorts of insane stuff in her uh, diary, which was put into evidence, and uh, therefore I'm quoting from that. So what kind of stuff? Oh, about how uh, Jimmy Jost, the boyfriend of his murdered, was working for Satan, and he and he uh, was uh, having sex with clones in a cave uh, under the house. Oh, that's true. Well, yeah, that's what she says. Yeah. And uh, to make matters worse, ladies and gentlemen, you can go read this yourself. It's online. The Windship Custer website. And there is an enormous article <laughs> about how Pearl Bear... Outlaw Radio, Don Waldman, perhaps you as well. We are all part of the George W. Bush Saudi royal family Nazi conspiracy. 
Well, I can sign off on that right now. <laughs> yes, I figured you could. Yeah. I mean, this is a lengthy article, mm -hmm. very detailed. Uh, brings in everybody and their dog into this, that we're part of this conspiracy. And I could follow his line of reasoning, which was real simple to follow because it's batty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anyway. well. So I, I, I sent a message back, and I said, this is fascinating stuff because I am Burl Bear. I am the guy who wrote the book Fatal Beauty. And I was stunned to find out that I'm part of this uh, conspiracy. conspiracy. Right. Now, would you please be so kind as to come on the show so you could explain to us how we are part of the George W. Bush Saudi royal family Nazi conspiracy? And he said, "I'm afraid to do. I'm afraid to come there and do that. I'm afraid I'll land at the Van Nuys International Airport and you'll kill me." I said, "I promise you, you land at the Van Nuys International Airport if you can. <laughs> no one's going to kill you." Uh, you could do it by phone. No, too afraid to do it, that uh, that it would be a demise. Okay. But it's still up there in great detail, this insanity. And it's got some stuff in there wrong, let's say just being part of this conspiracy. And it even raises the question, why would Jews such as Don Waldman be part of this uh, conspiracy? And they bring, oh, Fred Wolfson gets caught into it too, because that's more proof. Because Fred, who is Jewish and a famous private detective, is the only non-Saudi Arabian ever to be given that nation's highest award of valor. Because there was a, a Saudi passenger airliner that was blown out of the sky by terrorists, and he caught the guy and got a confession. And that made him a hero in Saudi Arabia. And they actually gave him the Royal Cross and Palms, which is the highest, like the Medal of Honor. It's like the highest award you can get. He's the only non-Saudi, the only American, the only Jew, whatever, to get that, that incredible honor. you get honor. a check also? Uh, no, kind of like my friend Carl Krogstad, the uh, avant-garde filmmaker. Uh, he submitted uh, one of his films to an international competition where traditionally, if you won that award, you got $10,000. That was a grand prize. He won the grand prize. He calls up Alpha City in Seattle and says, Don't worry about my outstanding bill. I got 10K coming. You're good. What arrives is a pewter bowl. You can't even melt pewter down and get 10K out of it. So he calls the awards people. He says, what, 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 Where's the check for the $10,000? go, Oh, this year we made an exception. We decided that, gee, maybe it looked like it was all about money because we've always given $10,000. This year, we decided to give a pewter bowl. <laughs> Next year, silverware. That's, that's, that's all good. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's kind of that sort of a deal. I don't know where I was going with that, but that's the way it went. I'm glad you went there. Yeah. So Carl's probably glad I went there, too. He's a great guy. He has a wonderful book, by the way, called Shot to Death. And it's filmmaking, you know, uh, uh, how to be a renegade kind of filmmaker. And it, it's, it really is. A, I was, you know, I hadn't read it in a long time. I was reading it the other night, and it applies to all sorts of artistic endeavors. That never forget is supposed to make money. <laughs> a lot of people forget that, and then, yeah. get, and then get pissed when there's no money. Yeah, well, I get pissed when there's no money. Yeah, well, you're, you, but you start <laughs> off right. You I start, start off with the, the right motivation. Yes. I figure I got all the pieces here. So you get. So in that case, I, I got a hold of Rhonda Glover, got her cooperation, then. Uh, I got hold of the prosecuting attorneys. Of course, they're more than happy to be the heroes of a true crime book. And the uh, police department for all their police records. Now, here's where you run into some interesting things. Uh, what information you can get under the Freedom of Information varies not only by state by state, 
but by attitude by attitude. Just like having a public defender. In Linwood, Washington, the public defender shows up at 8 in the morning and is only there for the people who plead guilty. If you plead not guilty, the public defender isn't there for you. Which is backwards, correct? Yep. But that's the way it works. Because they're only obligated to be there X number of hours, so they show up in the morning when the people are pleading guilty. I said, well, what, aren't you supposed to defend as public defender, defend those pleading not guilty? He says, we prefer the people who have enough respect for the process to plead guilty. Oh, man. Yeah, is that sick or what? Yeah, that's... Uh... Not what I expected to hear when I got up this morning. No, no, yeah. no one expects it. Now maybe it's changed <laughs> since uh, since when that was the case, but that was the case. Horrifying, but true. In fact, I was I was hitchhiking from my my son's condo uh, years ago and in Muckle Teal uh, down into Linwood, and I got picked up by a judge from the Washington State Supreme Court. We had a fascinating conversation. I said, "Boy, I could have used you on a case that." I, you know, in Linwood. Wait a minute, back up. Picked up? What do you mean picked up? I, well, I was hitchhiking. And a judge picks you up? Judge picked me up because I'm Start. in a very respectable area. I mean, like, I'm in, like, Muckle Teal, where the nice places are, you know. Had a lovely home there, you know, overlooking the ocean and blah, blah. And he, he picks me up, and uh, we got a conversation. And I said, you know, I said, I got stopped by a cop for a, uh, to check the validity of a three-day trip permit in the rear window of the car. He says, he's not supposed to do that. That's a violation of state law. We had a whole case about that, and we ruled that's a pretext stop for harassment. I said, oh, yes, it certainly was. And uh, the public defender said, oh, they can do that all they want. I said, no, they can't. It's a violation. It's a ruling by the... He says, if I would have known you were going through that, kid, he says, I would have personally come in to that courtroom as a judge for the Washington State Supreme Court and told them they were full of, you know, yeah. what? What? But, shit. Oh. <laughs> Deep beep. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, so then you get all the people you can to cooperate. Now, I was going to do a book, wanted to do a book, on the case of um, a woman in Walla Walla. Listen to this. A woman named Mrs. Zacharias, who's 87 years old, is murdered. Her house is torn to shreds. She is sexually violated with a broom handle. All sorts of horrible, horrible stuff. Uh... No one is arrested for four years. Four years later, they arrest what was the 14-year-old neighbor girl and prosecute her for first-degree murder. And she is convicted and sentenced to life in prison with that how, how did they? Uh, how did they get her after four years? How did that happen? They waited until she was 18. So they knew, but they knew all along. But she didn't do it. They also knew she didn't do it. And after she was found guilty, and they didn't expect you to be found guilty, they went to her and said, if you will testify against the people who really did it, we'll go to the governor we'll and have him release you. And she says, I can't testify against them because I wasn't there. A very quick, fast, Boy, and entertaining hour with the great and legendary Burl Bear. Uh, the man behind the man. The man behind the man. <laughs> Bro, what's next? A magic bad album, the demons of decadence, live from the loud life of the life from where? Lighten up loud. <laughs> on HowLawRadioLive.com. Oh, sounds like Mick, we love your lips.